survey where we are working our way through the New Testament, one book of the Bible at a time. And this evening we are looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus, so the book of Ephesians. Take your Bibles and go ahead and turn there to the book of Ephesians. Once again, this is one of Paul's epistles. Uh, so the Apostle Paul is the secondary author, the Holy Spirit, of course, being the primary author. Uh, it's an epistle, so it's written to the church in Ephesus uh, with the knowledge and the intention that it would be read by others in addition to just uh, the church to which it is addressed. Uh, as we try and uh, place Ephesians on a timeline and know when Paul wrote it, uh, Ephesians is one of uh, what we call the prison epistles. Paul wrote this while he was in prison. Uh, he mentions that in the letter. It is likely that it was his Roman imprisonment. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written about the same time period, uh, sometime in the early 60s, so uh, about 30 years after uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, uh, sometime in there. Uh, the purpose of this letter and the occasion for the letter, uh, there there is no specific uh, occasion for this letter. Like last week we looked at the letter to the churches in Galatia and we saw the occasion was the false teaching that was being perpetrated uh, in the churches and Paul was responding to that. There's no such occasion uh, here with the letter to the Ephesians. This is just more of a general letter uh, that he's writing to the church to encourage them uh, in their faith. Now, as we think about this and we think, well, why would he write a letter with no occasion? Why, there's no reason why he had to write this letter. So what prompted him to write a letter to this church in Ephesus? Well, as we think about uh, Paul's relationship to the church in Ephesus, uh, in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul uh, ends up in Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys. And, and when he gets there, uh, he comes across uh, some men, some disciples, it says, uh, and he asks them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And they said they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They hadn't been told this. And so then he asked them about their baptism. They had been baptized uh, into John the Baptist's baptism, uh, which was a baptism of repentance, but it wasn't uh, the baptism of of their Christ, like their union with Christ and his death and resurrection. Uh, so Paul explains these matters to them. Uh, he, re he baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, lays hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. There's 12 of them. And so this is the beginning of the church in Ephesus. Uh, they go into the synagogue. Paul speaks in the synagogue for about three months. Uh, many people come to faith. Uh, but then, of course, as happened quite frequently. They, there began to be some tension with some of the Jews uh, in the synagogue. And so uh, Paul withdrew from the synagogue and he rented a, a lecture hall, a school uh, there in Ephesus, and he taught daily in that school for two years. So Paul spent uh, over two years, he's there for three months in the synagogue, and then he's two years teaching every day uh, in this rented lecture hall there in Ephesus. Now, 
Other things happen while he's in Ephesus. So you may remember some of these stories. At one point, there are some Jewish uh, exorcists who go around casting out demons. Uh, if you remember this story, they try and cast the demons um, out of a man and the demons answer and say, Jesus, we know, Paul, we've heard of, but who are you? Uh, and then they attack, him, they attack the, the exorcists and um, overpower them, and it's a funny story. Uh, there's also a riot that happens in Ephesus. We see Demetrius, uh, the silversmith, who gets the whole mob worked up because uh, the gospel that Paul and the church there are teaching is upending the idolatrous practices uh, of the temple of Artemis there in Ephesus. And so some of these guys who, like Artem uh, Demetrius, who made little trinkets and sold them, his livelihood is endangered because of the gospel. And so there's a riot uh, in the city, uh, and Paul escapes that riot largely through the wisdom of some leaders in the church who tell him to stand down and not to go out and address the crowd. Uh, but Paul is there for almost three years in Ephesus. He leaves uh, travels around on some other missionary journeys. And then we see in chapter 20 of Acts, as Paul comes back by, that he actually sends for the elders in the church in Ephesus and has them come to meet him when he's in Miletus. Uh, and he speaks to them. He warns them uh, that there are going to be false teachers that arise after he is gone. Uh, but he tells them that they're not likely to see him again. He knows that he's going to Jerusalem at this point, but he's going to end up uh, probably going to Rome. He, he says, you're not likely to see me again. And in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 36, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more and they accompanied him to the ship. So you can tell he has a very close relationship with this church. They really care for each other. Um, he's got a close relationship with the elders in this church. So Paul has a concern for this church, and so he, he's in prison in Rome. He had told them he wouldn't see them face to face, but he decides to send them a letter uh, to encourage them and build them up in their faith. Of course, Ephesus is also uh, where Paul left Timothy, he left Timothy there to continue uh, pastoring that church and setting things in order uh, until he writes 2 Timothy and encourages Timothy to come to him in Rome. So what uh, themes do we see Paul uh, working with here? He's not correcting any false teaching. He's not addressing any specific situation. He's just seeking to encourage these believers and build them up in their faith. But we know that they're in the city of Ephesus where this mob has has rioted uh, where there is a pagan religion that is active and in conflict with the church. And so uh, what is Paul going to say to them? Well, there are several things uh, that he will speak to them about, primarily uh, the idea of unity, uh, unity in the church uh, between Jew and Gentile, uh, as they come together as one people, united together in Christ as his body. Uh, but also we'll see him addressing uh, unity in the home as well. Husband and wife, uh, parents and children, masters and slaves. He's addressing the situation in their home uh, and seeking to help them build up some defenses 
knowing that they're going to come under attack. The church and the family will come under attack because of the culture in which they live. And then, of course, he ends uh, with the armor of God, which is a a very well-known passage which we'll look at. Uh, Another theme that he will hit multiple times is the idea of mystery. He will talk about the mystery, uh, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, uh, and we'll see what he means by that as we work our way through here. Uh, A simple outline for this would be, of course, we have the greeting in verses 1 and 2, but most of chapter 1 is concerned with uh, the work of Christ primarily, although Paul never explicitly says this, but the idea is Christ as king over all of creation. Chapter 2 is concerned with uh, unity in the church, uh, united together in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. Chapter 3 then will be uh, concerned with this mystery of Christ, as Paul terms it. Uh, Chapter 4, he will address Uh, the idea of our identity being rooted in Christ, that we are new new creation in Christ. We're no longer in the old Adam. We are in the new Adam who is Christ. And then in chapter 5, he begins to apply a lot of this theology uh, and tells us how we should live then, that we should live in love, light, and wisdom. Uh, And then he will address household relationships, and spiritual warfare, and then close the letter uh, there at the end of chapter 6. So let's look at the greeting uh, as we begin. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a pretty standard uh, greeting that is very similar to what Paul would write in his other letters. But what you may notice is is that a lot of times in his letters, after he does a greeting like this, he will then uh, tell the church what he is thankful to God for uh, in that church before he begins correcting them. And here he doesn't do that. He will do that, uh, but he gets a little distracted. Uh, He doesn't get to the thankfulness until verse 15. Uh, So he's got verses 3 through 14 where he gets a little bit uh, distracted with some other things, which namely is our redemption or blessing in Christ. He says in chapter 3, blessed be, or verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Uh, So the blessings of The covenant, the blessings of God uh, that are spoken of throughout the Old Testament. We see the blessing of Abraham that we've been looking at in our study in Genesis on Sunday mornings. Uh, Paul here says that the church receives the blessings of God in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that God has to give us in the heavenly places in Christ. And you might notice uh, the emphasis that I'm placing on the last two words of verse 3, in Christ. He is going to uh, use this phrasing a lot, particularly in chapters 1 and 2. He says in verse 4 that God chose us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So he's addressing the idea of election, God's sovereignty uh, in the salvation of his people. Uh, He says in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, 
to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So this whole first chapter is packed, uh, densely packed with uh, concepts that get repeated multiple times. Um, the idea of election and predestination all through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, this idea of being in Christ is repeated multiple times. Uh, the idea of blessing and the idea of the, God's will, the good pleasure of his will. Uh, we see that multiple times as well coming up over and over again. So Paul is, is saying that we've been predestined to adoption. Not just redeemed, not just saved from the wrath of God due to our sins, but actually adopted as God's children into his family. So that's a a greater step than just being forgiven, that we're actually adopted, become part of God's family. But it is adoption uh, as sons by Christ Jesus. Uh, So we're we're adopted as sons in Christ again. Uh, We're redeemed in Christ, he says in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And so that's another phrase that we see repeated over and over again, the riches of his grace or the glory of his grace. But we're redeemed uh, in Christ through his blood, the sacrificial blood of the atonement, uh, without which there is no forgiveness of sins. And then uh, we see in verse 9 that he, he mentions the mystery for the first time, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. So again, there's this idea of uh, God does according to his will, according to what pleases him. Uh, he does all of his will. But what is this mystery of his will that he has made known to us, which he purchased? purposed in himself, uh, well, the mystery is, uh, in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So the mystery that Paul will talk about repeatedly throughout this letter is the idea that not only did Christ, the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the promised seed of the woman, the promised seed of Abraham, the son of David, all that stuff. Not only did he come to save Israel, the Israelites, but he also saves Gentiles. That's the mystery that Paul is going to speak about, is that Gentiles have been brought in uh, to the family of God, to the covenant community of God uh, in Christ. Uh, And so he will over and over again repeat Uh, this phrase, in Christ. In fact, in the first 14 verses, he says in Christ or in him, referring to Christ, at least nine times in 14 verses. Uh, So it's a very important concept. The idea is that we become part of the family of God on the basis of our unity with Christ. It is we are united to him by faith, and because we're in him, were therefore accepted by God and become part of the covenant community. So we've seen that uh, idea in the book of Galatians as well, uh, that how are we saved? It's not by joining the covenant community through the outward works of the old covenant, but it's by faith in Christ. Uh, well, Paul is, is speaking to that same idea here, that Gentiles become part of uh, the, the family of God, part of God's chosen people, on the basis of our being united to Christ by faith. In verse 11, he speaks 
uh, of the inheritance. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So uh, in the Old Covenant, uh, the idea of inheritance was very important. We've seen this in the story of Abraham and Sarah uh, with the birth of Isaac and not wanting Ishmael to inherit with Isaac. Uh, the inheritance there was the inheritance of the covenant promises, particularly uh, the possession of the land of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, obviously, we don't believe that uh, by virtue of us being Christians that we have uh, a claim to a piece of land over in the Middle East somewhere. Our inheritance is something other than that. Uh, our inheritance is all things. We inherit all things, the new heavens and the new earth, particularly uh, by virtue of being united to Christ who is the Son of God and therefore inherits all from the Father. Uh, but we, now we see in verse 13 uh, that he says, In him, that is in Christ again, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit uh, then comes and seals us uh, when we believe on Christ. Uh, he then says in verse 14 that the Spirit, he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So uh, the guarantee or the earnest some translations say, so think about if you go to buy a house and you put down earnest money, that money is saying, it's like a down payment, that you've, you've given this money because you intend to buy the house. So he says the Holy Spirit being given to us uh, is guaranteeing our final inheritance uh, at, the, at the resurrection. Uh, so that earn, the, the Holy Spirit present in us is that earnest or that guarantee uh, that we are his, adopted into his family, and that we will inherit uh, in the king, coming kingdom. But what is this redemption of the purchased possession? What does he mean there? Well, if we go back to Acts chapter 20, where Paul was uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as he's speaking to them, uh, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, so the church is the purchased possession, belongs to Christ. He purchased it with his own blood. So the Holy Spirit is here uh, as a guarantee that we will receive the inheritance when the church is finally redeemed uh, at the end of time. Uh, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, to the praise of his glory, he says once again. Then in chapter, in verse 15, he finally moves to that thankfulness uh, that we uh, normally see at the beginning of his letters. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And so here's uh, what he is thankful for in the church in Ephesus, what he has heard concerning uh, the life of the church there. Uh, and he prays some things for them. He prays in verse 17 that they would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In verse 18, um, that they would be enlightened uh, and that they would know uh, the hope of the calling and the riches of the inheritance that we are to receive. 
Uh, and then in verses 20 and 22, uh, he speaks about Christ, uh, which he worked in Christ, the power, the power of God, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So, like I said, Paul doesn't explicitly reference Christ as king, but that's the image that we're getting here. Christ seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, elevated above all spiritual uh, heavenly powers, earthly powers. He is king over all. Interestingly, there in verse 17, when he prayed that they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation, uh, he's using language from the book of Isaiah that was used to refer to the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, uh, that he would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation from God. So he's taking language about Christ from the book of Isaiah and praying that the church would receive that because the union of the church with Christ is so uh, full that those things that are true of Christ would also be true of the church, that we could receive uh, that spirit of wisdom and revelation that was Christ's uh, because we are his body. Uh, And so uh, then in in verses 20 through 22, when he's speaking of Christ as king uh, over heaven uh, and earth, all things, uh, he says in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Uh, that's a reference to Psalm 8, verse 6, where it talks about the Son of Man and God putting all things under his feet. Uh, so he's equating Christ again uh, as the Son of David or the Son of Man who will sit on the throne as uh, he sits in the heavenly places and has all things put under his feet. So Christ has all authority. The church has been united to him by faith. Uh, And so the whole idea here in chapter 1 is that Christ is the king over all of creation, not just over the promised land, not just over an ethnic people group, but over all of God's creation, visible and invisible, uh, and that he redeems his people and secures their inheritance, and they are united to him in such a way that that inheritance is guaranteed. They can be confident that they will receive it. As he continues into chapter 2, he continues to focus on this idea of being in Christ and and what that means for the church uh, to be united together because we're in Christ. The Old Testament uh, had anticipated physical resurrection. Uh, We see this in passages like Daniel 12.2 or Isaiah 26.19. There was some anticipation and hope of a physical resurrection in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. But we see here uh, that Christ is the first fruits of that physical resurrection. We have that physical resurrection to look forward to at his return. But in the meantime, we have new life already. We've been spiritually resurrected uh, because of our union with him. We see that in verses 1 and 5. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Or down in verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Uh, So we've already received new life. Uh, Our physical bodies haven't been resurrected yet, but we've received new spiritual life 
in Christ. Um, in verse 2, uh, he says that before we were made alive, we were dead in our trespasses, and when we were in that state of deadness because of our sin, that we were uh, aligned with Satan rather than God. He, he says, dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So there was a time before we were saved when we were aligned with Satan, enemies of God, Paul says in Romans 5. But now we've been made alive in Christ and adopted as sons, not just redeemed, not just at peace with God, but actually adopted into his family. In verse 3, he talks about uh, the sin nature or the flesh, he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So, again, as Paul deals with the idea of election and God saving his people, he says, We were all uh, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. Uh, we were pursuing our old nature, which was sinful, uh, and then God made us alive because of his grace. Uh, we've been made alive, he says in verse 6, we've been raised up together uh, with Christ. And then in verses 8 and 9, of course, very well-known verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So all of this uh, that has been done for us, we've been made alive, our sins forgiven because of the atoning blood of Christ, as he mentioned earlier, adopted into Christ's family. All of this has happened because of the grace of God, not because of anything that we have done. It, it's a gift that God has given to us, uh, that we have been saved in this way. Interestingly, in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, uh, that at that time you were without Christ. So you were once Gentiles, not anymore. Now you're in Christ. Christ is the true Israel of God, so you're no longer Gentiles. You're united to Christ. You are now in him who, who is the fullness of all, who is the true Israel of God. So you're no longer Gentiles. You were once Gentiles, but no longer. We have a new identity because of Christ. We were once outside the covenant. We were not the people of God. Now we are the people of God. In verse 13, he gets to that but now, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So once again, we're no longer Gentiles in the flesh, no longer outside the covenant community, no longer dead in our sins and trespasses, no longer strangers and aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, but now we are in Christ, and so we are alive. We are part of true Israel. Uh, we're no longer strangers. We're sons. All of that has been reversed. Our identity is new. The ethnic barriers that used to divide us no longer exist or no longer matter because we are in Christ. Uh, so we are all one in him. Uh, he says this in verses 14 and 15, For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Uh, So Jew, Gentile, whatever your ethnicity is, doesn't matter. If you are in Christ by faith through the grace of God, uh, then you are part of God's covenant people. Uh, We're no longer separated from one another. He says in verse 17 uh, that he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Uh, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So again in in chapter 1 and again here in chapter 2 we see the work of the Trinity, Christ, the Spirit, and the Father all working together to accomplish our salvation. Uh, And when he says that uh, he came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near, uh, this is uh, a reference to Isaiah chapter 57, uh, verse 19, where it's speaking of uh, the servant of God, and it says, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord. Uh, So that has been fulfilled now in the church, uh, that prophecy of Isaiah's. We're no longer foreigners. Uh, We are now citizens of true Israel, according to verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It's an amazing verse. Think about that. We are fellow citizens with the saints, with Abraham, with Isaac, with David. We're citizens of the same kingdom as they are. That's amazing uh, that we've been brought near who were once dead, who were once enemies of God. Uh, We're now citizens of his kingdom, adopted as his sons. But what's more, uh, Paul goes on to say in verse 21 and 22 that um, as that we're united in Christ, Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, he says in verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So it's not just that we've been joined to Israel, that we're citizens of the kingdom, we're actually part of the temple part of the dwelling place of God. So if you think about the Old Covenant, the importance of the temple in Jerusalem, that was where God met with his people. In the New Covenant, there is no physical temple building. It's the church that is the temple, made up of all the people of God, being built up with Christ as the cornerstone. So we have a united kingdom uh, in Christ. And you think back to the Old Covenant and how we had a divided kingdom after Solomon. Uh, The kingdom has now been united. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. If we're in Christ, we're all part of one body, one spirit, all worshiping the same God together uh, through our faith in Christ. In chapter 3, he then uh, spends more time talking about the mystery uh, that he had spoken of previously. In verse 1, he mentions that he's in prison. But in verse 3, he mentions the mystery again. He says, "...how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery." as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge of the myst- in the mystery of Christ. Well, what is this mystery? He says in verse 5 that it was uh, 
hidden in past ages, but it has now been revealed by his spirit uh, through the apostles and prophets. In verse 6, he tells us what the mystery is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So the Gentiles have been made fellow heirs uh, with true Israel. Uh, so that's the mystery that he's speaking of, uh, that we have been uh, united to Christ and are therefore uh, part of the Israel of God, not by immigrating uh, to Canaan, uh, not by keeping old covenant forms, getting circumcised and converting to Judaism, uh, but simply by virtue of our union with Christ by faith. He then says in verse 10 uh, that the wisdom of God is being made known by the church to the spiritual world. He says, uh, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Uh, so there's this idea that you know, Satan loves to divide. He, he loves it when ethnic Israel as God's people was divided from all the other peoples of the earth. And, and if he could keep that division there and... and keep the hostility between them and other people, then uh, that would mean fewer people uh, that would come to know the Lord. Uh, but that's been done away with. And now the church, uh, where Gentile and Jew both are united in Christ and redeemed, uh, is proclaiming to the spiritual powers uh, that their work uh, has not prevailed that Christ has prevailed instead. Uh, in verses 14 through 19, Paul then prays for the church there in Ephesus. He prays that they would uh, be spiritually strengthened, uh, that they would have faith, that they would know God's love uh, with all the saints. And so again, there's this idea that, that the Gentiles are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They are co-heirs, joint heirs with all the saints, and they should know the love of God the same as all the citizens of the kingdom do. Uh, in verses 20 through 21, he then says that all glory goes to God for the salvation of the nations. Uh, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So considering what he has just said about the church uh, being Jew and Gentile alike, joined together in Christ, Paul is saying that all glory uh, goes to God uh, for the salvation of the nations, which is the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Uh, so the mystery is that the Gentiles are now part of Israel uh, by virtue of their union with Christ. In chapter 4, then, uh, we have uh, the common turning point uh, in Paul's letters that we see, the therefore I beseech you. Uh, so ba on the basis of what has come before, the fact that we have a new identity, we're no longer Gentiles, we're no longer dead in our sins, we are now part of Israel because we're united to Christ, we're made alive in him, uh, that now we are to live differently than we were before. And so he says we are to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And so to walk simply means to live. Uh, we're to live worthy of the calling. What is that calling? It's to be the temple of Almighty God. That's what he had just said. We're to walk and live our lives worthy of the fact that 
God dwells in the midst of his people. So how is that to happen? Well, Paul in verse 3 uh, says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's talking about unity in the church. He goes on in verse 4 to talk about how we are one body, not two. There's not a Gentile and a Jewish church. There's just the church. Uh, that we're united as one body in verse 7, but that we're each given gifts individually. That to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So uh, even though we're all united in one body, he uses this analogy elsewhere, a body is made up of many different parts, and so we're all gifted differently. Uh, And so how are we to live as his church? Well, one of the ways we're to do that is to take these various differing gifts that he has given us uh, and to use them for one united purpose. Even though there are a variety of gifts, what are they for? He says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So if you think back to when Paul did his series on the spiritual gifts, uh, he repeatedly said that over and over again. What is the purpose of the gifts? The edification of the church, the edification of the body, not for your own personal edification, not for your own personal glory. Your gift given to you by God is for the good of others, for the good of the church. So uh, that, if we live that way, thinking about others in the church, pursuing the bonds of unity and peace within the church and using our gifts to edify others, uh, then that is how we live worthy of being the temple of God. Uh, in contrast to that, now he says in verse 15, um, but speaking the truth in love uh, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So uh, we're no longer, he said in verse 14, uh, to be deceived by false teaching, but instead uh, we are to be people of the truth, but we speak the truth in love, not harshly, uh, but seeking to edify and build one another up so that we can reach maturity in Christ. So truth brings unity. Truth brings edification. False teaching brings division. Uh, So don't ever let anyone tell you that uh, doctrinal teaching causes division. No. Good, true doctrine brings unity, not division. It's false teaching that brings division. Paul then says in verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So he said, here's how you should live. Uh, new, new creation in Christ, united together as one body in him. Here's how you used to live. Don't live like you used to live. He says in verse 18 that they are darkened in their thinking, uh, were not enlightened, that they are separated from life, that they're still dead. Uh, in verse 19, he interestingly says, uh, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. They've given themselves over. It's not even that God has given them over. They have given themselves over to pursue uh, their sinful desires and their sinful lusts. So that's how we're not to walk the way we used to. He says in verse 22 that we are to put off uh, our former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. We're to put off that old identity, that old nature, that old man, which is Adam, 
our, our identity that we got from our father, Adam. If you'll remember in Genesis, Adam, after he had sinned, had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And that's that sin nature that we inherited from Adam. We're to put off that sin nature because we've been made alive in Christ uh, and now we have a new man, he says in verse 24, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Of course, the new man, new Adam, is Christ. Uh, and so we have been made, we're being made into his image. Uh, this is our new identity uh, in him. Uh, in verse 25, he says that when the old man is put off, that so should the sins that characterize that old nature. We should no longer engage in those sins if we've put off that old nature. Instead, he says in verse 32, that we are to act in accordance with our new nature that we have in Christ, to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So all through the last part of chapter 4 there, he's got uh, this contrast between how the, we used to walk when we were dead in our sins and how we should walk now that we are alive in Christ, the old nature versus the new nature. Our identity uh, is now rooted in Christ rather than in our old sin nature, and that should radically change our behavior and our character uh, because we have a new identity. In chapter 5, he then uh, talks about three different ways in which we should live. Uh, love, light, and wisdom. Because that we, we are new in Christ, we should therefore imitate him. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. So you think about how a child imitates its parents. Uh, they, they talk like their parents talk. They say the same things, use the same vocabulary. You know, they try and act like their parents. It's just natural. That's what kids do. Well, if we've been adopted and made sons in Christ, then we should act like kids and imitate our Heavenly Father and live our lives in that way. And so he says in verse 2 that we should walk in love. Uh, and so then he lists in verses 3 through 7 uh, some sins that would be avoided if we love God and love our neighbor. Uh, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, all of these uh, various things. In fact, he says in verse 5, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So it's interesting uh, that he says a covetous man is an idolater. Well, what is covetousness? That is desiring something that doesn't belong to you. He says you, you're an idolater if you commit if you covet, you've committed idolatry. Well, how is that? Because you're desiring something, wanting to take something that doesn't belong to you. You've elevated that thing and made an idol out of it. What he is showing here is something that Martin Luther taught early on in the Reformation, is that if you break any one of the Ten Commandments, you've already broken the first one. Uh, and so that's the whole point. When he can summarize the law, when Christ summarizes the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, if you do those two things, all the law and commandments hang on those two because if you love God and love your neighbor, you would avoid all of these sins that he lists in verses 3 through 7. In verse 8, he then says that you were once darkness, but now you are light. So he's 
changing now to this idea that we walk in light. Uh, he doesn't say you were once in darkness. He says you once were darkness, but now you are light. It's an identity. It's not just a location. Uh, it's who we are. Uh, so this is another part of our identity, that we are light in the Lord, and so we should walk in a certain way. Uh, in verse 14, he says, Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now, in my Bible, this is set off as a quote, and he did said, Therefore, he says, uh, and then it's a quotation. It's a quotation from Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. It's God speaking uh, there in Isaiah. And God says to his people, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And Paul attributes that to Christ speaking uh, there in Isaiah. Christ will give you light. Uh, so Paul is making the connection there that Christ is uh, the, the Lord who is speaking in Isaiah chapter 60. Um, then as he moves on uh, from there in verses 15 uh, through 21, uh, he says that we should walk in wisdom, uh, that we should be thoughtful and careful in how we live our lives, redeeming the time, he says in verse 16, because the days are evil. Uh, if you think about uh, the writings of the apostles here in the New Testament, uh, they taught that we are in the last days. And so if we're in the last days, uh, they have come. The resurrection, resurrection has begun in Christ. We're anticipating our resurrection with him when he returns. But we're in this period of last days, and so we are to use our time wisely. Uh, he says that we are, in verse 18, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. So, uh, again, back to this idea of being thoughtful, alert, careful in how we live our lives. Uh, he says, but interestingly, all this thoughtfulness and carefulness, wisdom about how we live our lives, uh, in verse 19, uh, he says that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I understand that a lot of the psalms are laments, and we can make a sad melody in our heart, but I get the impression from this verse that he's saying that in the midst of being careful and thoughtful and wise about how we live our lives, we should find joy in that that we should make melody in our hearts, that we should give thanks to God in all things, uh, that we can be joyful in living in this way. And then he ends this section in verse 21 by saying, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So again, this goes back to ideas that he began there in the beginning part of chapter 4, that uh, we serve one another. We're united together as a body, as a church family, uh, and so we serve each other. We consider others above ourselves uh, in the fear of God. Uh, so we're serving Christ uh, and, and his church. We're his body. So uh, we submit to one another in that way as we seek the good of others instead of our own good. So he's just talking here about holy living, putting off sin, living in love, light, and wisdom. 
he then moves in the, in the latter part of chapter 5 to talking about uh, the unity in the household. Uh, the, per, the previous passages had talked about unity in the church, but now he's turning his attention to the home, to the family. And he says in verse 22 that wives should submit to their husbands, and verse 33 that they should respect them. He says in verse 25 that husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. And then he goes on to talk about uh, how marriage itself uh, is a mystery because it's really not about us. It's about Christ and his church. Uh, A godly marriage reflects the gospel, uh, that the husband loves his wife and lays down his life for her in the way that Christ uh, sacrificed and laid down his life for the church. The wife submits to her husband in the way that the church should submit to Christ. Uh, And he even quotes from Genesis 2.24 about, uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So again, he's talking about that unity that we have with Christ as his body, uh, that we're united to him, one flesh, in the same way that a husband and a wife are one flesh uh, in their marital union. Uh, Then in the beginning of chapter 6, he talks about children with their parents, how children are to obey their parents, uh, and that uh, the parents, particularly the fathers, are to train their children and bring them up uh, in the Lord. Uh, Just as wives were to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, uh, fathers are to train their children in the Lord, and children are to obey their parents in the Lord. So this is all done uh, in the Lord, in Christ. Uh, He quotes Exodus 20, verse 12, uh, which is the promise that is attendant to this commandment for children to obey their parents, uh, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Well, in Exodus, it says that you may live long in the land, and it's talking about the promised land. But here, Paul has changed it, that you may live long on the earth. And so, uh, some commentators take this to mean that Paul is thinking eschatologically about the new heavens and the new earth uh, and our inheritance that he's already spoken of uh, earlier in the letter. Uh, and so, he's, he's saying that uh, if we have these sorts of families that honor Christ and serve him and and that all of us fulfill our roles in the Lord as we're supposed to, uh, this is part of us walking worthy of our calling and worthy of the inheritance which we will receive uh, in the kingdom. He then moves on to talking about uh, servants or slaves and their masters. Uh, He talks about uh, how the servants are to obey their masters Uh, as if they were obeying Christ and that masters are to treat their their servants or their slaves um, not harshly um, but to treat them well knowing, he says in verse 9, that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So it's interesting that Paul doesn't just outright condemn slavery but what he does is he sort of takes the, the, the ground out from underneath it the underpinning out from underneath it, because he says, slave, master, either one, you are a slave to Christ if you're a believer. You have a master in heaven. Uh, So regardless of what your station in life is, you are to obey Christ. You are to serve him, and then you are to honor authority, earthly authorities that are over you, uh, 
in a way that would bring honor to Christ himself. And if you are in authority over others here on earth, you are to treat them in a way that would bring honor to Christ, knowing that he is your master. And so ultimately, uh, this whole section here about husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and slaves, uh, Paul is saying that we all have roles and responsibilities just like we do in the church, uh, but ultimately uh, we are serving Christ. Uh, so if we are doing so, there should be unity in the home in the same way that there was unity in the church. Now, again, they're in Ephesus. There's a temple, pagan temple there, and so Paul anticipates uh, that there is spiritual warfare happening. He has already experienced it himself when he was there. So he then closes his letter uh, by telling them to stand firm, strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and to put on the whole armor of God. Uh, he says that Satan will seek to disrupt uh, the unity of the church and the home, and so we must be prepared uh, spiritually to defend ourselves. When Paul starts to talk about this armor of the Lord uh, and all these various pieces of armor, uh, he likely was looking at a Roman soldier that was standing there near him, but he is also importing language from the Old Testament uh, into his description here. Uh, when he talks about uh, having your waist girt with truth, uh, you could go look these up. I'm not going to read all these, but Isaiah 11 verse 5 talks about the Messiah who will have his loins girt about with truth, righteousness, and justice. Uh, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation comes from Isaiah 59, 17. Um, having your feet shod with the, the preparation of the gospel of peace comes from Isaiah 52, 7. Uh, the shield of faith is a little more obscure in the Old Testament, but there are passages such as Genesis 15.1 where God uh, tells Abraham, I am your shield. Uh, or 2 Samuel 22.31 that talks about all those who trust in the Lord, uh, that he is a shield to them. Uh, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, uh, there are references in Isaiah 49.2, Hosea 6.5, and Isaiah 11 verse 4 uh, that talk about God's words uh, being like a sharp sword. Uh, and, then, and then he closes it out by saying, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Uh, John Bunyan in, in his book Pilgrim's Progress uh, talks about all prayer uh, as another weapon that we have alongside the sword of the Spirit. Uh, again, Paul is using language from the Old Testament here, Psalm 55, 17, Psalm 86, 3, Daniel 6, 10, Daniel 9, 20, and Hosea 14, 2 uh, that talk about praying in all things, um, supplication for all the saints. Uh, he's getting that language from the Old Testament. Then in verses 18 through 20, uh, he tells them what they should be praying for. Pray for all the saints and pray for me, he says, uh, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So he's asking them to pray for him as he continues, even though he's in prison, to proclaim the gospel and to make known the mystery of the gospel. And that mystery is that it's not just for ethnic Israel, but it is for the whole world. Uh, and so that is a prayer that we can continue to pray uh, for your elders as we teach and preach uh, and for other uh, Christian ministers and missionaries around the world. 
believers take part uh, in this great end time battle. The victory has been won. Christ has secured victory, uh, but we still uh, in encounter resistance and uh, attacks from Satan, and so we are to be prepared, have our defenses prepared. Paul ends the letter uh, talking about Tychicus, who is carrying the letter to them and will uh, encourage them when he comes. And then he ends in verse 23 and 24 and says, Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. That's the full intent of his letter right there in those two verses. Peace to the brethren, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what he wants for them. Peace and unity in the church and in the home. Love and increase in their faith and the grace of God made known to them. Uh, that is uh, his intent in the book of Ephesians, not only for the church in Ephesus, but for us as well. Let's pray.